Our Bible reading for today is 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. I'll just give you a few moments to find that, either on your device or on your paper, in your paper Bible. 1 John 3, 1 to 10. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. We'll keep your Bibles open there at 1 John 3. I've got two questions to ask you. Who are you? Who are you and what do you do? It's kind of the questions you ask someone when you meet them. Maybe not the who are you, but you know, what do you do? And we can often identify who we are with what we do. I am a fireman or I am a nurse. And today we want to think about and I want to ask you and have you consider who are you and what do you do? And perhaps in 25 minutes you'll have a bit of a different perspective on who it is that you are and what it is that you do. Your answer to those two questions uh, might change a little bit. Who we are is firstly answered by seeing what it is that God has done for us. God has outrageously, lavishly fire-hosed us with his love. I did one day of firefighter training as part of a fire engineering diploma that I did a million years ago. And uh, I got to hang on to the end of a fully boosted fire hose. And I can tell you, I felt like I was about to be whipped around the room, like when you turn on the garden hose, you know, hanging onto it and it whips around. With uh, the, the pump kind of fully boosting that fire hose, I felt like I barely had control of that thing. This is God's love lavished on us, fire hosed us with his love, has our Lord God. Look again at verse 1. 
in your Bibles, which is, it's also on the screen. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are if our trust is in Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are children of God. We are children of the one who flung the stars into space. Just by speaking, he created our Milky Way galaxy, which is on the screen, and is one of an estimated two trillion galaxies in our universe. They've got no idea. They're just kind of spitballing a number. Now, I think if you held out your hands and tried to kind of make anything out of nothing, I'm going to go for chocolate chip muffin. I like chocolate chip muffins. You probably couldn't do it. If you want to try along with me, we'll do it all together. Hold out your hands. Think of something to make. Not too heavy in case you drop it. One, two, three, chocolate chip muffin. Didn't work. Never works. Of course it doesn't work. I'm not God, and neither of you. God is almighty, alone, all-powerful, all-just, all-loving. He created out of nothing. And he calls us his children through faith in Jesus. It's his phenomenal power that wants to make you and I his child. It's mind-boggling when you really think about it. He who can do this wants to know you and me and make us his beloved children. It's a love which takes all his initiative. There is nothing particularly lovable in any of us that should make him want to do this. It's out of his great love that he shows this initiative to want to make us his children. A love that is lavishly, freely given to those who are undeserving. When we contemplate our sin and rebellion against the background of God's unapproachable light, his total holiness, we begin to sense something of John's wonder that God should ever bother with people like us. John is flabbergasted that God should ever bother with people like us. But this reality is true. Why does he bother with people like us? Love. He is loving. And he loves us. The love of God delights to change rebels into children who belong to his family. Not only does he give us his name, we're called children of God, but he gives us his status. We are children of God, not just called, but are children of God in verse 2. As his children, we are his heirs. When you adopt someone into your family, they, they're legally entitled to a share of all that is yours, to a cut of your wealth. Everything is God's, and we have been adopted into his family as his children. This is not wishful thinking, it's not legal fiction, it's not imagination. This is an eternal reality. We are children of God's, children of God, heir to all that is His. This is a work of God. And to understand this, to get your head around this remarkable reality, is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We can't really understand that we're children of an almighty God without the Holy Spirit explaining it to us, 
without God's Word explaining it to us and the Holy Spirit helping us to understand it. Without that, we can't possibly understand it. This is not an earthly reality. It's beyond our human experience and our human ability to comprehend. The God of the universe has made us His children. Who can understand that without God explaining it to us by His Word and by His Spirit? No one can possibly understand that. It is too good to be true. It is remarkable. And that is why the world doesn't know us in the same way they did not know Jesus. I wonder if that part of the passage reminded you of John chapter 1, the part where it says, the world does not know us. In John chapter 1 it says, see... um, I'm a bit behind in my slides. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, that is Jesus, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and for the most part they despised him and rejected him because they didn't recognize him for who he truly was. They didn't recognize him. And Christians, we must expect the same when we're in the world, that we're not recognized as children of God. We're not recognized as people who love like Jesus did and seek to love like Jesus did. We're not recognized by the world. Of course we're not. They can't understand us. They can't understand what we're on about. And often, when we don't understand something, we fear it and we reject it and we persecute it and even kill it like they did to our Lord. Who are you? You who believe in Jesus are children of the living God. That is who you are, first and foremost. And unfortunately, the world will not see nor understand this until Jesus returns in glory with his angels. They never will. They never can. Unless God does a work in their hearts. Only when Jesus returns will the world know and understand that Christians mean no harm. In fact, we mean the world so much good and love. In fact, our stance against the evils of this world that just seemed bigoted at the time were actually good and loving and came from the giver of life. Who are you? You are children of God. Why? Because of his great love. Not because of anything we did, certainly not because of anything that we need to do, You don't need to earn God's love. You don't need to behave in a certain way to keep God's love. You have God's love. When your children misbehave, you don't kick them out of the family. You might discipline them, but they're still part of the family, right? We are children of God. Now that we know who we are, what do we do? If we're children of God, well, what do we do with our lives? Well, verse 3 tells us, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. 
We wash ourselves. That's what we do as children of God. It can be a bit confusing. Didn't Jesus wash us? We'll get to that. This means we live the pure life, the holy life that God has laid out before all of his children. If all of our future expectation is centred on Jesus, then we shall want to be as much like him as we can right now as we head towards that future reality when we'll be made like him. If heaven is the destination, we want to be on the road now and living, walking the road now that leads to heaven. And again, it's not about saving yourself from your sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. It's a matter of living the life, it's a matter of living life the way your brother Jesus did now that you're part of his family. Now that you're in Christ, he's your brother. We live as the family does. If your son hadn't showered for three days, you wouldn't kick him out of the family. You might kick him out of the kitchen if you're preparing dinner, if he's a bit stinky, and tell him to go have a shower. But you wouldn't kick him out of the family. Similarly, those we are called by God to live as followers of Jesus. We won't always get it right. We won't always get it perfectly right. But if we're, if we're Christians, if our hope is in Christ, if we have our future hope certain in Christ, we'll be motivated to live like Jesus, to live holy and pure lives like he did. You might ask the question, if, we're, if, if the future's assured and guaranteed, why make the effort? Why not just do whatever we want? I think it's like, being the son of a family business. I chose this photo because they're electricians, um, like I was a really long time ago. If you need an electrician, don't talk to me. Talk to Chris or Steve. They're real electricians. Now, if Mr. Chavez here, he looks like a, a nice guy and dad, if he was a loving, hard-working father, and I presume he is, and he said to his son, son, one day you will inherit the family business. Now, assuming his son actually wants to be an electrician, um, do, you expect, do you expect that because his father made that guarantee to him that he'll inherit the family business, he'd just kind of put his feet up and twiddle his thumbs and play Candy Crush on his phone while all the other electricians are running around doing all the work? Or do you think the opposite would happen? Because he's assured the family business and because he loves his dad and he knows his dad loves him, do you think he'd be the hardest working guy in the shop? I think he would. I think he'd be so motivated by the love of his father and his future hoping owning the business for himself, he would work all the more harder than anyone else, even though the business was assured. That is the Christian life. We've been loved by God, made children by his love, given future hope of heaven. That's motivating. That's exciting. We have our future assured. The world around us may reject us. They will. They must. They can't understand. We can only understand because of the Holy Spirit, not because we're clever. But we know to expect that. We know that for most people in the world, to get together on Mother's Day in a school hall in southwest Sydney for church is bonkers. It's completely mental what we're doing right now, in most people's eyes. They can't possibly understand that this is the best thing you could be doing, even on Mother's Day, is gathering for church. 
worshipping God, remembering the hope that we have. Who are you? You are children of God. What do you do? You purify yourself. You live the holy life that's been laid out before you, that's been walked before you by our Lord Jesus because of God's love and because of our love for God and our hope of heaven. That's what we do. Now, the next verses, 7 to 10, 4 to 10, um, I'm going to whip through, rest assured. But it's all about being who you are. John says, you're a child of God, you've been called to live the holy life, so do that. Be who you are. Enjoy being who you are, who you've been made to be. It's a joy to be who we are. We've been cleansed from our sin, rescued from eternal life to eternal death, rescued from the clutches of the devil and given this life to live. So John says, be who you are. Now the next, if you look in your Bible, the next verse, it's going to be on the screen too. It's kind of handy to look at both. Verses 4 to 10 are interesting because they parallel. So verses 4 to 6 actually parallel verses 7 to 9 with a summary statement in verse 10. Verses 4 to 6 parallel verses 7 to 9 with a summary statement in verse 10. It's laid out on the screen. I hope it's clearish. Now, you see there's, a, there's an introduction and a theme, and they're paralleled. So in verse 4 in the middle column, it says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And then in verse 8 in the right-hand column, it says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. They're very similar, aren't they? They parallel one another. Everyone in the world sins. From Adam to the newest born baby, we are sinful. We don't meet God's standards and we do things we shouldn't do that break God's law. Sin, in essence, is lawlessness. Breaking God's law. And despite the best efforts of our culture to attempt to excuse sin and put it down to cultural relativity or personality issues, in our heart of hearts, all human beings want to be self-ruled. We want to be kings, we want to ignore God's rule. That is sin. But look at verse 8. There's no such thing as self-rule. We're either ruled by God or ruled by the devil. There's no such thing as self-rule. It doesn't exist. You are ruled by a loving God or an evil devil. One or the other. And the devil is a liar and a friend to no one. The devil seeks to deny what is good, to tempt people into disbelief. To say to them, God's love, that lavish love, that can't be true. You're kidding yourself. Don't believe that. The devil is the author of lies. God's love is indeed on offer through faith in his one and only Son. That's why he came, verse 5, middle column. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Verse 8, B. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to take away our sins, to wipe the slate clean. If we were to stand before God in a court of law, having put our trust in Jesus, he would say, not guilty. You have done nothing wrong ever.
We are innocent of all wrongdoing. Jesus has taken all of our sin and all of our rebellion upon himself and taken it to the grave. When he died on the cross, he rose. Our sin remained dead forever. It was at the cross the devil laughed his heartiest laugh as his greatest enemy died, and he thought he had the victory. But three days later, the devil was put in his place once for all. His laughter turned to mourning and tears as Jesus rose from death as the conqueror of him and sin and death itself. As he peered into the empty tomb, the devil realized he was defeated once and for all. He continues to prowl around like a roaring lion, tempting us to disbelieve in God, but he's toothless and his days are numbered. We have the victory over the devil through faith in Christ. We have the victory over sin. So it makes sense then that John goes on to say, verse 6, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Followers of Jesus are without sin. We're cleansed. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Since there's no sin in Jesus, it follows that there's no sin in us either. If Christ was upright and blameless and we're in Christ, it follows that we too are upright and blameless. There's no sin in us. But there's a problem, isn't there? What's the problem? Come on. We still sin. <laughs> we still sin, don't we? There is still sin in us. Does that mean what John says is wrong? Of course not. We still sin. And the Apostle Paul himself knew this struggle, and he wrote about it in Romans 7. Paul wrote, I have the desire to do what is good. Now, this is after he'd been met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd become a Christian. He'd become a preacher. He was planning churches. And he says, I have the desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me, my flesh, that does it. Paul was saved, but he continues to struggle with sin. We all do, even as followers of Jesus. Saved, cleansed, forgiven, sinless in that spiritual sense. Spiritually sinless, purified, holy, but still living in sinful flesh. What was Paul to do? What are we to do? Well, Paul goes on in Romans 7 with the answer. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ continues to be our saviour day by day by day. Christ continues to mediate between us and our Father in heaven. And the difference between the believer and the unbeliever 
is a desire to live for Jesus. The believer is saved, they're cleansed, they're pure. And when they sin, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever in sin is the believer doesn't want to sin. They might stumble into sin, but they repent. They feel remorse. They feel shame. They feel guilt. It could even be a sin they've struggled with for years, but the the Christian hates it and constantly looks for a way to get out. The Christian repents, knows grace, knows forgiveness, and and washes themselves and goes on living for the Lord, seeking to live the holy life. Yes, we still sin, but we hate it. Yes, we still sin, but we're forgiven. Yes, we still sin, but we seek to change and live the way our brother Jesus did. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who's done what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. What do Christians do? They live righteous lives inspired by the love of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit in step with their Lord and Saviour Jesus. And you can tell by their love for their brothers, their sisters, even their enemies, we're taught by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Christians avoid the devil who tempts to lead us astray. Christians love others deeply in the same way that God's love has been lavished upon them. What does this mean for us today? It's incredible joy to be who you are. We have the immense joy of being children of God, of living in God's grace, and the immense joy of living like children of God, the pure life of living out God's grace. No one likes a fake. No one likes being in a situation where they feel like they need to be fake. Lara and I grew up in the western suburbs. She's in northwestern suburbs. I was western suburbs. And we went to a fancy restaurant in the city once, and they had escargot on the menu, snails. And I thought, well, what's the big fuss? I'll try it. So I tried the escargot. It was disgusting. (laughs) If you like escargot, I, you know, full respect to you. Um, I hated it. I couldn't pronounce half the things on the menu. We tried a couple of things. I felt so fake being in that restaurant. Now, no discredit to people who, belong, who eat in those types of places all the time. That's, fair, that's great. But I felt like a fake. I felt like I was in a place I didn't belong. And Christians ought to feel the same when we sin. We ought to feel like a fake when we choose to sin. It's not a nice feeling. But living for Christ, there's joy, an immense joy in living for him, in living the Christian life that's been given to us and enjoying the love of God and living out that love as we love others. There's a joy in being genuinely who you are. People won't recognize it for good necessarily. People might criticize you, they might avoid you, they might reject you for the good that you do in living for Jesus, but you've got to expect that because they can't understand what you're doing. 
They can't. They don't have God's word. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They need God's word. They need the Holy Spirit. So we press on in doing good, in loving one another, in loving those in our world, in doing what we can to share God's word with them so that they might see that the Lord is good. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. He is all light, no darkness. 1 John 1, 5. He brings lasting joy. He brings all that is truly satisfyingly, eternally pleasurable. It all comes from him. And his promise is true and lasting joy if we will trust in him and walk the path he's laid out before us. Friends, children of God, I want to read to you Psalm 16 to finish. You can flick to it in your Bibles if you want or just listen along. Psalm 16, that's stunning. Then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. A miktam of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the godly who are in the land, they are the noble people in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Oh, praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life, for you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And all the people said, Amen.